Uh, well, friends, I wonder whether you've experienced real pain before. Uh, a few years ago, I signed up with a personal trainer, and uh, this man made it his mission to inflict as much pain on me as possible. Uh, our first session, he made me work so hard that I couldn't get out of bed the next day. Our second session, he made me work so hard that I had to run outside of the gym almost ready to throw up. Every time I saw him, I was terrified of the pain he would put me through, and so it's no surprise that after a little while, I started to go to the gym a little bit less and eventually not go at all. I mean, I, I knew in my head that I should be going to the gym. It's just that the pain was so real that I wanted to avoid the pain even more. Uh, apparently, uh, a third of people who sign up to gym membership uh, don't end up going after the first year, uh, probably for the same reasons. Uh, you see, I think generally we are people who are hardwired to avoid pain. Uh, is that you? Just like it is for me? Uh, when we experience pain, we think that something is wrong and we avoid doing the thing that causes the pain. And uh, I want to suggest this morning that this is a little bit like sharing the good news of Jesus with people around us. Uh, you know, when we first become Christians, uh, we want to share Jesus with everyone because we've just discovered this wonderful news that we've been forgiven by God. There's a way to be forgiven by God. There's a way for our consciences to be cleansed before God. There's a way to enjoy a right relationship with God with all the blessings that it brings. And so we want to share that news with others. But then after some time, you begin to notice the pain. You know, you begin to see that not everyone around you shares the same enthusiasm for Jesus. Some may mock you. Others may reject you. Some may do it politely. Others may do it rudely. But you begin to sense that something is wrong because the pain is there. And after a while, many Christians give up sharing Jesus because of the pain. It's not that we think it's unimportant. Uh, intellectually, uh, I think we can all agree how strange and selfish is the person who is content to be saved by God content to receive that salvation from God and yet not share it with other people. We may even have an underlying sense of guilt about our failure to speak. But when it comes to the crunch, I wonder whether many of us would rather stay quiet in order to avoid the pain than to boldly and confidently share Jesus with people around us. I know that's true for me sometimes. Uh, is that true for you as well? Well, friends, uh, we've been looking at the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible. Uh, last week, um, as uh, uh, DK and, and Oscar have described, um, we began to see the Apostle John's disturbing vision of the seven trumpets. Uh, we saw God's judgment as the first four trumpets were blown, unleashing natural disaster into the world. We saw God's trumpet as the next two trumpets were blown, uh, bringing torment and death uh, to uh, unbelievers who were not sealed uh, by God on their foreheads. 
And we saw that all this was a warning sign from God for people to, to repent and to turn back to God before it's too late. And yet after the sixth trumpet blast, we saw, as Oscar mentioned, that great tragedy of people still not turning back to God, but continuing on worshipping the idols in their lives. But here in chapters 10 and 11, what we see is a brief interlude or, or a break in the action. Uh, it happens after the sixth trumpet is blown, but before the final trumpet, the seventh trumpet, is blown. And we've seen this pattern before in the seven seals. If you remember uh, before, we had the seven seals being opened, and then we had, had a brief interlude where we saw uh, that great vision of the 144,000 people standing in heaven. Uh, I think these interludes are meant to slow us down a bit and give us pause for reflection before the vision of the end. However, the thing I want you to see here in chapters 10 to 11 is that the big theme of this particular interlude is that of witnessing for Christ or sharing the good news of Jesus uh, with those around us. Uh, we'll see next week that chapter 11 is about the church witnessing for Jesus. But here in chapter 10, we see the Apostle John himself being commissioned to prophesy or to speak God's word in a way that calls on people from every nation, language and rank, to turn to Jesus. Now, you can see it right at the end there in chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 11. Uh, this is the commission to John. Uh, John says, And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And so what we see in chapter 10 is a, is a vision that God gives to the Apostle John in order to help him to prophesy and to speak God's word and to witness for Jesus in a world that is set against him, in a world that is hostile, in a world where there is persecution and pain for Christians. And I want to suggest that these things will help us also uh, to speak about Jesus. And so what does John see? What does John see in this chapter? Well, the first thing he sees is a big vision of Jesus. A big vision of Jesus. Uh, you can see it there in, in verse 1, chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Uh, you see, John sees here a vision of this massive angel coming down out of heaven. But did you notice that it's unlike any of the other angels that we've seen up to this point in Revelation? For this angel is described in ways that fit only God himself. And so, for example, you'll see that the angel is wrapped in a cloud and has a feet like a pillar of fire. Now, when you hear about clouds and fire, what does that remind you of? Anyone want to have a, have a bit of a guess? Exodus, yeah. Um, in Exodus, uh, in the Old Testament, we see God dwelling with his people that he has just rescued in a, in a a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. There is something very godlike about this angel. 
Uh, Further, we are told here that the angel has a rainbow over his head. But in chapter 4, verse 3, which we looked at a few weeks ago, we saw that there was a rainbow around the throne of God itself. And here, notice that the angel's face is like the sun. But again, we've seen something like this previously, because in chapter 1, verse 16, we've already seen that John sees an awesome vision of uh, the resurrected Jesus in all his magnificent glory, and we are told there in chapter 1 that Jesus' face shone like the sun. In other words, the angel that John sees here is not just an ordinary angel, but he is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself in all his glory and majesty. The word angel simply means a messenger. And so what John is seeing here is the ultimate messenger himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice how this angel is described. Uh, In verse 2, we are told that He has a little scroll in his hand and that he has his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Uh, In the Bible, when uh, someone in power has his foot on something, uh, it generally means that he is ruling over that thing. Uh, It's a picture of uh, conquest and, and domination and rule. And so here, Jesus is ruling over the whole world because he has his foot both on the land and sea, which basically is the entire earth. It's a bit like the first moon landing in 1969. You know that famous video of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin kind of, you know, tumbling out outside their space vehicle and stepping onto the moon for the first time? Um, As they step onto the surface of the moon, um, Armstrong says those famous words, that's one small step for man, uh, one giant leap for mankind. And then you move to another scene and they put an American flag on the moon and they stand over the moon, claiming the moon for America as the Soviet Union is watching. Uh, That's the kind of image we get here with Jesus standing over the world claiming the world for himself. But unlike the moon landing, Jesus is not sort of bobbing up and down, you know, out of control. He's actually got his, his foot pressed against the earth. It's like he's, he's got his foot against the neck of all his enemies as he rules this world. And friends, uh, what a difference it would make to our sharing of the gospel if we have this big vision of Jesus in our hearts and in our minds. You know, often, if we're honest, we fail to share Jesus with other people because people seem big and Jesus seems small to us. I wonder whether that's true for you. Often we fear the things that people might say or do to us And they seem more powerful, and Jesus seems weak because he is mocked and ridiculed and his people persecuted in this world. But can you see here that what John sees is not a weak Jesus, but the resurrected Jesus in all his glory, with both his feet firmly stamped over the world. 
Now, what God is saying here is that you do not need to be frightened if you serve Jesus. You do not need to pander to the secular world that keeps on telling you to be quiet about him. You do not need to feel apologetic for speaking about Jesus. When we see a vision like this of Jesus in our heads and in our hearts, then it's meant to put a bit of steel into our spines. For Jesus towers over all, he has his foot on the world, and one day he will stomp all over those who are his enemies. And so in that confidence we go out and we call on people to turn back to him. Well, uh, we've seen that John needs a big vision of Jesus in order to fulfill his commission to prophesy about Jesus. But what he sees next in the vision is meant to give him a bit of urgency about the end, a sense of urgency about the end. Uh, Now, you'll see there that initially there is something hidden about the end time. Uh, In verse 2, you'll notice there that Jesus is holding a little scroll that is open in his hand. If you remember in chapter 5, we saw Jesus taking a scroll from God's right hand because as the lamb who was slain, he was the only one who was worthy to open this scroll. And we saw there that the scroll represented God's plan to destroy his enemies and to vindicate his people on the last day, to vindicate his people who are suffering in the world. But here, notice that it is not a big scroll, but it is a little scroll. And so I think what this is meant to represent is a small part of the bigger plans of God. But the strange thing here is that when Jesus begins to reveal the contents of this little scroll, John is told not to reveal to us what is in it. You can see there in verse 3 that Jesus begins to call out the things that are in the little scroll, and uh, you have the sounding of of the seven thunders. But just as John is about to write down what he is seeing, well, he is told by God in verse 4 to seal up the seven thunders and not to write down what he sees. Now, what are the seven thunders? Well, we're not really told here, are we? Uh, It may be another level of judgment an escalation in judgment, just like the seven seals and the seven trumpets. Uh, This might be the seven thunders, which is another layer of judgment. But the contents of the seven thunders is not actually revealed to us, and whenever things are not revealed to us in the Scriptures, uh, I think it's a dangerous practice to try and speculate too much. Now, friends, we must be content to allow for mystery with the things of God. However, I also want you to see that there is something which is revealed clearly to us here. And that is that the end is not too far away. The end is not too far away. You can see it there in verse 5. Verse 5, And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, 
the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. You see, here, Jesus raises his right hand and swears an oath by God, because, frankly, there is no one higher that he can swear by. And it's like Jesus is in a courtroom with his left hand on the Bible and his right hand uh, uh, up, swearing that what he is about to say is the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. But what is the truth that Jesus wants to reveal? Well, you can see there that it's the fact that there will be no more delay before the end comes. You see, the only thing that is left to happen in this world is for God to blow his final trumpet and for Jesus to destroy his enemies and to save and vindicate those who belong to him. That's what verse 7 is about, where Jesus speaks about the mystery of God being fulfilled. You know, whenever you see the word mystery in the Bible, it's not talking about something that is mysterious and unknowable. That's often how we use the word mystery, isn't it? But it's talking about something that was previously hidden, but is now uh, revealed and open for all to know. Uh, just this week, my son had to bring a present for another student in his class as, as part of a, a Kris Kringle thing that they did. And so uh, uh, he, he bought a present and he wrapped the present up. I think it was a big teddy bear or something like that. But it was so badly wrapped that you could see what the present was. The, the head of the bear was just kind of, you know, open up the top. Uh, that's sort of what the word mystery is like in the Bible. It's an open secret that at the end, when God calls time on this world, everything in this world will submit to Jesus. That's God's secret that is now revealed to the world. On that last day, those who have put their trust in Jesus will joyfully and gladly submit to Jesus and find everlasting life. Those who have lived their life ignoring Jesus and rebelling against him and habitually disobeying his word will find nothing but pain and sorrow and eternal condemnation. And they are the ones who will forcibly be made to submit to Jesus as they are condemned for all eternity. And so, friends, John needs to know this reality about the urgency of the end so that he might fulfill his commission to speak of Jesus and the grace of God that is available only in him. And I want to suggest that if you and I really believe what God is saying to us here, then we cannot help but urgently speak about Jesus as well. To people around us. If you and I really believe that there is nothing more to happen in this world than for God to call time and for all people to submit to Jesus, and if you and I really believe that on that last day Jesus will either be a person's saviour or their executioner, then a lot of the things that we tend to give great time and energy to should not be a priority for us. What ought to be the priority of every person who belongs to Jesus 
is that we feel this urgency because we believe what God says and we want to call people to come to Jesus before it is too late. Will you and I make the sharing of Jesus our priority? Will you and I really understand and believe what God says about the urgency of the end? Well, John has been given a big vision of Jesus. He's been told about the urgency of the end. But now, as he's about to be commissioned for the task of prophesying and speaking the word of God about Jesus, he's reminded of the cost of serving Jesus in this way. Uh, Let's pick it up from verse 8. Verse 8. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Uh, it's, a, it's a very strange picture here, isn't it? Uh, John is told to go to Jesus and to take the scroll from, from his hand. But when he goes to Jesus and asks for the scroll, he is told to put it in his mouth and to eat it so that it goes down to his stomach. Now, uh, if you are a careful reader of the Bible, uh, you might remember that uh, this picture of eating a scroll actually comes from Ezekiel chapter 2. You might just want to jot down that reference and look it up later, Ezekiel chapter 2. But in that particular chapter, uh, just like John, the prophet Ezekiel is given a scroll to eat. And I think it's meant to represent the idea of feeding on God's word and chewing over it and digesting it so that it kind of sinks deep inside of us. Not just superficially, but it sinks deep into our hearts. You see, you and I will never be effective spokespeople for Jesus unless we are feeding on God's word and taking it to heart so that it becomes a part of what we think and how we live. Are you somebody who is regularly feeding on God's word and letting God's word sink deep down so that it makes changes to you? It transforms the things that you live for. But friends, here's the thing. When John goes goes to Jesus, he's told that when he eats the scroll, it will be bitter in his stomach and yet sweet in his mouth. And when he eats it, that is exactly what happens. In his mouth, it tastes as sweet as honey, and yet it gives him indigestion because in his stomach, the scroll turns sour. And I want to suggest that anyone who has genuinely served Jesus and spoken about Jesus to unbelieving people will know exactly what John is talking about here. I mean, when we speak about Jesus... It is the sweetest thing in our mouths 
as we are reminded again and again of God's kindness towards us in this gospel. His kindness in forgiving our sins and cleansing us in our consciences and giving us the hope of eternal life. It's the sweetest thing. And yet, as we serve him and speak about him to others, what we find is that there is great bitterness as well. Do you know that bitterness of seeing people who do not repent, of pouring your energy into people who just will not listen, even as they politely smile at you? Speaking about Jesus will not... Speaking about Jesus is the sweetest thing in the world and yet it is also the most bitter thing and the most costly thing. But it is only through this speaking that people will hear the warning of God and by God's grace, some, not many, but some will turn to him in repentance and faith. Uh, I don't know whether you've seen the movie The Titanic, uh, one of my favourite movies. There's a famous scene in the movie as the ship is sinking at the end. Uh, All the rich people have been put on lifeboats, and yet there are still people out in the water, uh, freezing and drowning. Uh, The people in the boat are afraid that if they go back and try to save others, well, uh, they might risk their own lives and their own comforts by having others in the boat with them. But as they are deliberating about what to do, you see this big lady called Molly Brown just jump up and she says, what is wrong with you people? There is plenty of room here. What is wrong with you people? There is plenty of room here. Friends, I wonder who you and I are more like. Are we like the ones in the boat, afraid to do anything because it will mean risking our comforts and losing the things that we want for ourselves? Or by God's grace, will we be more like this big lady with a big heart who is willing to pay the cost because actually there is plenty of room for more? What kind of cost are you willing to pay in order to speak about Jesus for the salvation of those around us who are lost and who are heading to hell. As we come to the end of 2018, I wonder whether for some of us it might mean sacrificing our comforts, uh, breaking out of that habit of just not bothering, and that we would take that uncomfortable step about speaking of Jesus to work colleagues and friends, especially as we have so many social occasions around this time of year. Or, as we head into 2019, I wonder whether for some of us who are regulars, it might mean sacrificing our comforts and getting involved, particularly during uh, times in our church calendar where we especially focus on mission and go out to tell other people about Jesus. Make it your plan not to be away from church during those times for that overseas holiday. Now, for those of us who may never have spoken about Jesus and are really afraid of of where to start, 
then perhaps in the new year, it might mean taking the step of getting trained uh, to build your confidence to, so that you can speak about Jesus. It will mean being humble enough to ask others to help you in this. Or, for all of us, perhaps it might mean speaking about Jesus to each other. You know, not everyone who comes to church is saved. Uh, perhaps if we ask the question about how people um, are relating to Jesus, it will help us to see where people are really at so that we can help people to come to know him. But the more important question, I think, is whether you and I have fed on God's word and have taken it to heart so that we really believe it. Uh, for those who feed on God's word are those who cannot help but to have a big vision of Jesus. Those who feed on God's word are the ones who cannot help but have an urgency about the end. And those who feed on God's word are those who, like our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave up his comfort for the salvation of the lost, will be those who also are willing to give up what is precious to them so that they can serve Christ and to make him known for the sake of the lost. It will be bitter. It will be painful. Now, I cannot promise you that doing things like this will be easy for you or costless. There will be a rejection. There will be mocking. There will be the ridicule of people but it will be the sweetest thing as you are reminded yourself of the gospel that has saved you. And so, have you eaten this bittersweet word of God? Are you someone who has so taken the gospel to heart that you cannot but help speak to others, even through the pain? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you for the sweetness of the gospel in our years as we are reminded of the death of Jesus for us. And we thank you for the sweetness of knowing that you have turned us from being your enemies to being your friends. And Father, we thank you for your kindness and grace that has been so lavishly showered upon us in the gospel, even though we do not deserve it. Now, Father, we know that uh, the world that we live in is much the same as the world that the Apostle John lived in. It is full of people who are ignorant of Jesus and living a hell-bound life. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to be more like Jesus so that we might have a heart for the lost. Help us to be people who, like Jesus, sacrifices our comforts for the eternal good of others. Now, Father, we are often afraid of speaking, but give us a big vision of Jesus and such an understanding of the reality of your plans for this world that we might make it our priority and our goal to tell people that we know that there is good news for them in Jesus in a way that brings glory and honour to our Lord and Saviour. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.